0: At the end of every service, I give uh, the same benediction. With rare occasion do I break from my same benediction. Uh, You guys are probably tired of me saying it, but it's a very important passage. It's called the Great Commission. And it says this All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus, not me, Jesus. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I say that every week. And the question I have for you today is what is a disciple? That's what we've been commissioned to do. That's what we've been commissioned to make. That is the heartbeat of church. One of the questions I hear from newcomers to our church all the time is, what's your plan for discipleship? And we have a plan for discipleship. Members, you know full well what we do. You know how how we do it, what our plan is, what our strategy is. I give an annual document overlying. Here's what we're getting after this year. But my question for you is, what, is a disciple. If we don't have clarity on that word and what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, then we can't get after the great commission Jesus has given us. We're just keeping ourselves busy with a lot of church work, but we're not doing what Jesus commissioned us to do. And so I turn to you personally, before we answer that collectively at a church. as a church, what are the marks of a true disciple? How can you tell a true disciple from a hypocrite Harsh word, but biblical word. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who appears as a Christian on the outside, but inwardly is actually not a disciple. How can you tell a true disciple from a hypocrite? Are you a true disciple? Or are you a hypocrite? Today's story continues our survey of the gospel and uh, it's the history of the life and teaching of Jesus in, in the Gospel of Luke. And, and we know that the, that the writer, Luke, was a historian. He began Luke chapter 1 by saying, I've eyewitnessed, uh, I did eyewitness testimonies with all the men and women who were around and who met Jesus and who were ministered to by Jesus. And today we come to this wonderful story. And I honestly, as I was preparing this, I had to cut out more than I kept in this sermon because there's so much richness in this story. It's the call of the first disciples, It's the call of the first apostles, Peter. In fact, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also become disciples of Jesus. But really, this is the story of Peter becoming a disciple of Jesus and the miracle that took place in order for that to take place. Now, as we go through this story, I'm going to look at it through the lens of the different categories of people that we meet in this story. And you'll see how I play with that a little bit. But I want to expose to us three people that are not disciples— And how we see them play out in this narrative. And then by the end of it, we meet Peter, James, and John, who have become true disciples. It starts with the crowds and ends with a few disciples. And it's what happens in between that's the separation between the two. And so I want to separate for us between the crowds and the disciples and show you what that looks like. So let's read the whole text together. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. If you remember, Jesus has just healed many. He's been preaching in the synagogues, and now he hits the streets. Real ministry always hits the streets. It begins in here, we invest in each other, and then it goes to the streets. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats which was simon's he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat pause there jesus uh, is really remarkable he knew something being the creator of the universe he knew that water echoes sound that if you preach from a boat and you preach towards a crowd on the on the sand you can actually reach far more people because it serves as an amplifier so jesus is the first one to use a microphone it's a joke When he had finished speaking, he sat down and taught the people from a boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they, they both began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And the language there is like ferocious. The language is, You'll be catching men alive. That's the translation. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. The word of the Lord. Now, I'm gonna to reveal to us four different categories of people that we see in this text. And the first category is the watching crowd. And they might be summarized as a group that is kind of in the place of come and see, come and see. They're the watching crowd. Now, Peter, frankly, is one of the watching crowd when we meet him in the boat. The the, the crowd is pressing in on Jesus. They're interested in what he has to say. And, And Peter is on the boat. He's in the area. If you imagine just a small kind of like little cove where sand would be. The men were standing on the sand. Jesus is teaching them. Peter has just gotten out. He's washing his nets. He's a busy fisherman. He's a tradesman is what he is. And he's come in from a long tired night. The crowd is there. We get the idea from the text that he's aware of who Jesus is. So, it's not like Peter's coming from the lake this way, the crowds are coming this way, and Jesus is totally caught off guard, or Peter's totally caught off guard. Peter recognizes Jesus, he calls him master, but really at this point, he's simply one of the crowd, and he's tired. Now, why were the crowds there? They were pressing in on him in order to hear the word of God. Jesus was a great preacher, he was a wonderful teacher. And many times when Jesus taught, crowds would begin to follow. Now, this is this was very common in that day with rabbis and with other traveling teachers. Now, if I go out on the streets to preach today in Chicago, more than likely I will disperse the crowds. (laughs) That's actually what happens when I go out, is that the crowds go away from me. Um, However, in those days it wasn't like that. Traveling preachers would draw crowds because it was very much a Greek culture. People liked to gather and hear what the latest teaching was and And rabbis were considered part of kind of the the educated class. And for a a common kind of non-educated person in that day, a chance for them to learn would be to sit by one of the traveling guys, one of the teachers. And so a crowd would oftentimes gather. Now, especially if it's Jesus, there's a power to what he was preaching. But we're also told in the Gospel of John about his Capernaum ministry. Now, he's still in Capernaum at this point. And the the writer John tells us in John chapter 6 that it was during this time period that many of the crowds left Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The crowds gathered to have their ears tickled because they liked what they were hearing. They were pressing in on him. They were fervent, wanting to know, what does he have to say? But then, you know, Jesus said something a little too wild for them. It was a little too difficult for them to swallow, the pill that he was saying. And so eventually they looked at him and they said, Well, that's not for us. We liked you when you were saying this. But Jesus, what you just said over here, that that ain't gonna cut it for us, and we're gonna get out of here. Now why why do they like part of what Jesus has to say and not the other part? Because they're only part of the crowd. They're not true disciples of Jesus. They've come to have their ears tickled, right? They're like many Bears fans, right? You go to a Bears game in Chicago, by the fourth quarter, when they're down, the stadium starts to get abandoned. You got a handful of guys that are still there at the end of the game, uh, but most of the people have already left if they're down. Because, and you can see the writing on the wall. This is not going anywhere. Fourth quarter is not gonna rebound at all. And they just leave. They got better things to do with their time. They've given up. That's how a lot of people are treating Jesus in this scene. Now, today, there are many crowds that surround Jesus. Many. They love parts of what Jesus has to say. In fact, there are books by atheists written about some of the wonderful things that Jesus said. And they pick the pieces that they like and they remove the other pieces and make some kind of story up to try to say he never really said these things or, well, you don't have to listen to all of his teaching. But what are they doing? They want to be affiliated with something about Jesus. They want to be near enough to Jesus to get a little bit of the good vibes that are coming off of him. But they don't know anything about reorienting their lives to follow Jesus. They want some teaching that might give them a a sense of morality, maybe religion in their life, but they don't want to be a disciple. Because to do that you need to count the cost and you need to follow him. What are they like? They're like Jesus in his teachings in Mark chapter eight, verse 18. Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear and do you not remember? They have ears to hear what Jesus is saying. And frankly, many of those in the crowds have heard sermons like the one I'm giving countless times. The crowds are filled with people who have spent many days in church. They are. Yet, they're not truly followers. What's the condition of their soul? Most importantly, the condition of their soul is that they do not know God. They have not received Jesus. And on the day that they stand before a holy God on their judgment day, if no change takes place, if they remain a part of the crowd, they will remain cut off from God for all eternity. Having your ears tickled by Jesus from time to time, having your your mind and your intellect stirred by something of ethical teaching that he taught or maybe even opening your Bible every once in a while and and seeing something nice that he said does not make you a disciple. That does not cover you in the blood of the Lamb. That does not uh, take the resurrection of Jesus and adhere it to your soul so that your eternity is secure. You're just part of the crowd. You're following along. Now, this is the first category that we meet today, and I need to pause here and ask if there's any truth of this for you. Remember, the crowds can be in the pews. This is an issue of the heart. The crowds were pressing in on Jesus. They wanted to hear the word of God. You've come today. You want to hear the word of God. That's, I'm assuming, why you're here. It's not that they didn't want to hear the word. It's that they didn't want to adhere to the word. They they didn't want to live the word. They didn't want to be submitted to the word. They wanted to just have enough of it to be able to say they were around Jesus, but not enough to change their life as a result of it. Is this you today? And if it is, I want to pause right now before I go any further and say, you do not need to leave this room in the same condition that you came in. If you are part of the crowd, the Lord has assigned this message for you To make sure that just like Peter was part of the crowd as it began, that by the time we get to the end, something has changed in you as well, and that you would make a commitment to be a disciple of Jesus, to know Jesus. The crowd's the first one we meet. And what's their heart? Their heart is come and see. That's all they want. And if it's good enough, they'll stay. Second group we meet. I'm gonna label this one the cultural Christian. The cultural Christian. Now, bear with me as I explain to you how I get this. The second group is going to be represented by Peter. When Peter gets in the boat and follows Jesus, now follows Jesus, he's stuck on a boat, he can't really go anywhere at that point, but Jesus goes to Peter says, hey, put out from the land just a little bit so I can preach to the group. So Peter, respecting Jesus, first calls him master. Now, that word's a heavy word. He's recognizing that this person, Jesus, has some kind of authority, some kind of expertise in a particular area. And he adheres to him. He says, okay, get back in the net. And you imagine Peter's tired at this point. But then Jesus says, go back out into the depths, drop down your nets to catch a fish. And what does Peter say at that moment? He says, Master, verse 5, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Now, there's a wrong way and a right way to read this. I think the wrong way is to actually see this as a truly obedient step by Peter. I think the right way to read this, what most scholarship says, the way this is written is it has a sense of skepticism in the tone with which Peter is saying it. What Peter is saying is this. You're a master preacher. I'm a master fisherman. (laughs) Jesus, it probably makes sense for you to stay your lane and to let me stay my lane. I've been out there all night, I'm great at what I do, I was just cleaning my nets, I caught nothing. But I respect you and in my society you have more authority than I do. You're a master, you're a rabbi, you're a teacher and I've heard wonderful things about you. You don't know about fishing, that's what I know about. But I don't want to disrespect you so let's go out, I'll do whatever you say. That's essentially what Peter's saying. Now, you might read that differently. I do want to let you know that's what much of the scholarship says is how you interpret the language he says there. He's skeptical. He is a little begrudging about following Jesus, but notice he's doing it. He's willing to go through the outward motions of what Jesus told him to do without truly having a heart change that says, I rejoice at the slightest thing you might command me to do. Yes, I'm all in because it's you and you have expertise over both. Morality and my whole life. You see the difference there? Actions with no worship. Now, much of American Christianity today is what I would call cultural Christianity. And they're doing just like Peter was here. They they know a lot about Jesus's words. And in fact, they've grown up in an environment where what the norm is, is Christian ethics, Christian life, Christian lifestyle, (coughs) going to church, going to a small group, being a part of some kind of biblical community, saying Bible verses about things, saying a prayer before dinner. Why do they do those things in cultural Christianity? Now, now let me pause for a second. Not all cultural Christianity is bad. I don't want to rip on the Bible belt. I actually think, to be honest with you, that that, that kind of is what we, in one way, aim for. Wouldn't it be beautiful if Christianity so took over the city of Chicago that it was just expected? Everybody around here is a Christian. Everybody raises their kids to know the Lord. Everybody goes to church. Everybody takes Jesus really seriously. And you can imagine over a long enough period of time that some people would take that for granted, but the general culture will be very biblical. That's not a wrong thing. That's not a terrible thing. I'd love that for Chicago. But it can breed a familiarity with the actions of Jesus that are detached from worship of Jesus. Many today, in America especially, are cultural Christians. Knowing how to come to church, knowing how to talk the talk of all the things that Christians are supposed to say and do because they've been around it for so long. You went to youth group when you were a kid. You went to all the classes. You've been around enough faithful preaching that you, you know what preachers are supposed to say, you know what preachers aren't supposed to say. This is cultural Christianity. Perhaps they're going to church, perhaps they're tithing. Perhaps they're serving. But the cultural Christian will do all of these things without ever having a heart transformed by Christ. There's an author named Kyle Eidelman who wrote a book a couple decades ago called Not a Fan. And he writes this. He says, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus but have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. Now, what's the, what's the real risk with cultural Christianity? The real risk is that when you begin to do Christian things on the outside and then you come in, and you join a Christian community, it's very easy to deceive everybody and then other people will begin saying good things about you, will begin acknowledging the things that look good on the outside about you, about your faith. But then that begins to puff your head up, and you begin to deceive yourself and saying, "I really am a Christian. I'm doing this thing because why? Because I go to church, because I'm in a small group, because I serve in the children's ministry. Because I joined the Bread of Life ministry. And you begin to think that what you do defines who you are before God and you're a cultural Christian. And you begin to deceive yourself. This is all through scripture. This is pointed out by the scriptures that this is not what really means to follow God. Go back to Genesis. Cain and Abel. These two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve, they, offered, they both offered an offering to God. Abel's was received and Cain's wasn't. Why? because Cain was going through the motions. He made an offering, but his heart wasn't in it, and the Lord saw right through it. He saw right through it in the very first pages of the Bible. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and who is the number one group that Jesus rebukes over and over again? He calls them you whitewashed tombs. The Pharisees. Why do you call them whitewashed tombs? What's a whitewashed tomb? It looks beautiful on the outside, but it's full of dead, rotting bones on the inside. It's scrubbed, immaculate, and the tombs in that day, they were ornate, especially for those who were religious leaders. They put money into these things to make, and they were manicured, they were tended to, but inside, it was a coffin, and it was a set of bones. Dead men. Psalm 50, verse 16 to 17, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. Over and over, I had a dozen verses I could have put here just to show you that the scriptures over and over reveal that it is possible to recite the scriptures. It is possible to take the words of God on your mouth and have no heart change. What's the condition of their soul? What's the condition of the soul of a cultural Christian? I, I fear the word that I think about from my ministry as a pastor is watchman, watchman. Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel is the watchman on the wall who's Who's, who's proclaiming truth and, and guarding, making sure that the blood is not on my shoulder, so I'm, I'm warning. I fear, I fear that the hallways of hell are paved with cultural Christians. That, that terrorizes me as a watchman and as a pastor. And part of the heart of this sermon is to say, if that is you, if you are a cultural Christian, and you don't actually know and love Christ. You haven't looked into the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of of Jesus and his love for you and his gentleness and kindness and long suffering and mercy towards you and seen him on the cross and seen him in the resurrection and said, my life is to follow Christ. That is what I'm about. I do not want you to leave this place confused over what it means to be a disciple. Life is far too short. It's far too precious and judgment is real. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, some of the most haunting verses in all of Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Lord, didn't we do many things that looked biblical on the outside? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. I never had intimate relationship with you. You never loved me. you, You remained a rebel to me, doing things on the outside that made everyone else think you were a Christian. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Do not leave today thinking you are a Christian if you have not become a disciple. We're gonna get there in just a moment what a disciple is. But let those words haunt you for a moment. Don't leave under that judgment. Number three. Number three. The convicted sinner. Now this is gonna surprise you. This third group is still not a disciple. I'm putting the heat up today. The pressure's on. This group is still not a disciple. Peter's following Jesus. He begrudgingly follows what Jesus has to do. He lets his nets down into Lake Nesaret. And all of a sudden, a, a pool of fish so overwhelming that it's miraculous begins to overtake his boat. They end up pulling the nets, and the nets are bursting, right? He pulls the nets, and he lugs them over, but there's more fish to be caught. So he nods over to James and John in the other boat, the sons of Zebedee, his business partner, says, Come over here. They load his boat up until the boats themselves are sinking with fish. This is not a natural phenomenon. This is not an accidental phenomenon. You can't explain this away. This is Jesus performing a miracle to win a disciple. That's what it is. And that's what he does every time he calls a disciple. He performs a miracle, because each of our hearts are rebellious to God, and the only way it becomes unrebellious is for God to perform a miracle. And so I've been praying for miracles all week in this room, okay? But this is what this is. Now, there's two aspects to Peter in this. First of all, he has an enthusiastic admiration for Jesus. He looks at at Jesus, he sees the catch, and you've got to imagine this fisherman who is exhausted from catching no fish, seeing the boats overloaded. Just imagine how you'd feel. Just imagine the most successful day in your career you've ever had times 10. Personalize it for a moment. It's just... You know, I'm looking, I'm looking, real estate agent, you're, you're a real estate agent, and all of a sudden, you close 10, $10 million properties. That would be the, best. That'd be the best day in your career. That's what Peter feels like in that moment. You'd be riding high on that day. This is incredible, that's his whole career. All his life he's been a fisherman, that's all he's ever known, and now he's got the most miraculous catch of fish, him or anyone he's ever heard has, have in those two boats. It's an enthusiastic admiration. It's not discipleship yet. He's not a disciple yet. Many have an enthusiastic admiration for Jesus. Why do they get that? Well, because what can happen is that church can become a bit of theater at times. And and theater can be emotional. And you can have an emotional experience from time to time that's brought on because of any number of reasons that then some people... They think that because they had an emotional, enthusiastic experience with Jesus, they go back to that and say, I'm a Christian. I had that experience. No, all you had was an emotional experience from being around Jesus. You get around Jesus long enough, you're going to have an emotional experience, guaranteed. That's going to happen. You go join our bread of life ministry, you serve the homeless downtown, you're gonna have an emotional experience. It's gonna happen. You join our kids ministry, eventually you're gonna see miracles take place, you're gonna have an emotional experience. Doesn't make you a disciple. What's the second thing he does? He has an overwhelming sense of his own depravity. Listen to his words here. His language changes from master to Lord. At first it was master, you're an expert. Now it's getting closer, getting closer. He's using the word Lord. that word does not always translate to God. It can be used of a very respected person, but he's upping his language with how he's talking to Jesus of this. He falls on his knees before Jesus, grabs a hold of Jesus, says, "Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord." Now what's happening? Now he has an overwhelming sense of his own immorality before this holy man. Is this discipleship? Is he a true disciple yet? No, he's not. He's right on the verge. He's getting close. The law of God is weighing down on this man's soul, and he's looking up at holiness, and he's having a sense of his own depravity, a sense of his own breaking of the law, a sense that he doesn't belong in the presence of God, and he's looking up at Jesus, and he's saying, I don't belong next to you. This is, a, this is not a right fit. Many people will experience the weight of the long bearing down on their heart and on their soul. We call that a low point in life, or we call that rock bottom. In the the spiritual world, historically, we call that preparatory grace. That's a good theological term for you. What is preparatory grace? It doesn't mean that, that you're actually already a Christian and you're preparing to receive the gospel. What it means is that oftentimes, before a person receives the gospel and becomes a disciple, the law of God will so weigh heavily on their life, they'll begin to take inventory of themselves and say, I am a sinner. I'm unholy. I've broken all the Ten Commandments. I'm guilty of it all before a holy God. And there's a, there's a terrifying conscience on a person. That's the language they'd use, a terrified conscience. That were they to die today, they know exactly who they'd be. And that's where Peter is at in this moment. He hasn't become a disciple yet. It's about to happen, but he's prepared. The law of God is weighed down on him. Now, let me read to you about preparatory grace. One, one of the Puritan fathers named William Perkins, he says this, The law, especially the moral law, urges and compels men to go to Christ. For it shows us our sins, and that without remedy, it shows us the damnation that is due unto us. And by this means, it makes us despair of salvation in respect of ourselves. And thus, it it enforces us to seek for help out of ourselves in Christ. The law is then our schoolmaster, not by the plain teaching, but by stripes and correction. Now, let me interpret that for you. As the law of God weighs down on our hearts, what it's supposed to do as we begin to hit that spiritual rock bottom, or for many, it's a real world rock bottom, You, 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 you hit the low. In that point, your gaze is supposed to look up to the only one who can help you in that space. It's Jesus. It's Jesus getting a hold of your life. He will lift you up. His his burden is easy, his yoke is light, he will carry you. But what happens in this moment is that many people settle for a half discipleship or for an alternate solution. Rather than turn to Jesus, and and, and look, when people are in a rock bottom, their souls are so sensitive I'm just telling you, if that's you today or if you have a friend who's in rock bottom, you're, you have to minister like like they are a, a, a broken vase. And this is how I teach men in, in marriage class how to care for their wives. This is strange. I, I don't have time to go into that right now, but you have to like they are a vase, that your job is to carry them across the finish line. men, that's how I instruct you to lead your wives. And you, you can't jostle it, you can't shake it. You, because they're gentle, and and, and you need to love them. But but when someone hits rock bottom, that vase has been shaken and broken and cracked, and and you get to come alongside like Christ and love them, and just gently point them towards Jesus, because their souls are so fragile. Rock bottom's a hard place. But many, what they do is they hit that rock bottom, and and then they settle for cultural Christianity. It's not discipleship. And then they go a few years and they think, oh man, I got out of rock bottom because I'm in a small group now and I'm doing so much better. And no, they're not, you're not doing better. You, you, put a, you, you put a Band-Aid on it. You didn't deal with your soul. It was the soul condition that got you there. Or then you turn to some other function. You, you, you turn to some vice, right? You turn to alcohol. You turn to addiction. You turn to busyness in work. You turn to any kind of thing to just distract yourself from the real issue. And the real issue is your soul was broken before a holy God and you know it. The law is weighing down on you. What do you need? You need the Lord Jesus. You need discipleship. You need to know who you are before a holy God and you need to know that your soul's condition is taken care of before that holy God. And there's only one way for that to be. It's knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. All right, lastly, The true disciple, the true disciple. Look at how Jesus responds to Peter. We've gone from the crowd. We're now, we're gonna end this story with three true disciples. Jesus says to Simon, verse 10, and James and John, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Just remember what that means. They just sold 10 houses worth $10 million as real estate agents. They walked away from the commission check. They put it down, and they said, you're a whole lot better than that would have been. Make that real for us. That's what they walked away from. Now, three marks of discipleship from this turn in the story. Number one. The first mark of a true disciple is that Jesus has truly ministered to the soul. Where am I getting that from? Look at what Jesus does. Peter is broken in that moment. Peter's broken. He's on his knees. He he sees the brokenness, and Jesus speaks to him those precious words. What does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And then then he says, for now on, I'm going to make you a catcher of men. Uh, I've got got a whole new story for you. I'm ministering to your heart. The first mark of a true disciple is not just that they come to church. is that they have been ministered to personally by Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just someone they talk about in the third person. Jesus is someone they talk about as I know him. It's this intimate relationship with Christ. Why? Because the gospel is that Jesus went to the cross, shed his blood on the cross for you in order to establish a relationship with you not to give you a new code of morality only, not to give you some new things that are more religious in your life, to establish an intimacy of relationship. You know a true disciple because they, they love to run to prayer. It might be a, a strength, might be a muscle that's not very strong in their life, it might be a muscle that needs strengthening, it might be something they're learning how to do better, but they know Jesus because he's ministered to them. He's, he's actually met their brokenness, whatever that was for each of you, and he turned it and, and and you found man, like, I'm healed. I I genuinely have been changed from who I was to who I am now because of what Jesus is. First Peter chapter one, verse eight and nine, Peter says this so well. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Does that language describe the way you think of Jesus? Is there this, you know, I don't wanna make it seem like you've gotta just be this like skipping person down the street all the time about who Jesus is, like. but in a sense, kind of, right? Kind of. Like, Like if the gospel's true, and if God loves you solely because of the blood shed on the cross for you, and if Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death, secured your eternity for all eternity, and you have heaven waiting you, and he promises to be with you to lift your head up, do you not now have a joy inexpressible I don't get how you can't. Is that not at least a a, a normative principle in your life, if not an all-the-time thing, that you love to run to Christ? Why? Because he's ministered to you. Do you recall old habits in your life as as futile, as empty, as vain, as meaningless? You look back on the things you used to do and you say, ugh, it's disgusting. I love following Jesus. See, that's the heart of someone who's been ministered to by Christ. Second thing we see in, in Peter, he left everything. He left his boats, he left his career, he left his vocation. On Not much. He, he, not much information of what they were gonna be doing. You'll be catching men. Great, I'm in. I don't know what that means, but, but I'm in. Right? Here's what I know. You. I'm following you wherever you're going. Because you're good. I want you. That's the one thing he knew. And he left it all to follow Jesus. There is no halfway Jesus disciple. No such thing. The call on your life might not be to abandon the career that God's gifted you with. In fact, that's not normative. It, it, what's normative is, is that God blesses you in your career to make much of Jesus in whatever space he's put you in. Wonderful. Not everyone's gonna have the same story as Peter. Some will. Some will have a story where you, were, you had one path and then God said, changing story, now you go here. But many will stay in their vocation. But here's what it is. To forsake all and follow Jesus can happen across all of your careers. It's not a career thing. It's a, it's a this thing. I am willing to be, to be a fool in the eyes of everyone around me for following you. I will follow your every word because you are my Lord. I will submit to anything and everything you tell me to do because I have weighed the cost and I know that following you is better than anything else I could do in my life. And you look at your life and you say, what was I used to be following? I used to want a huge career, right? God might bless you with that, but here's what we know. That's not gonna be your God anymore. It's not gonna be your God anymore. God might overwhelmingly bless you and give you power and authority in secular spaces. If so, use it to the glory of God, but it is not your God. This is your God, and God might minimize your career in order for you to pour your effort and your energy into other places and experience the goodness of God despite opportunity costs that you might have had if you had a, if you had a state in your corporate going the way you were. This second principle is so important. We leave everything to follow Jesus, It's it's this turning from who you were and saying this is worth everything. Now I gotta ask you, this this is not the mark of a radical disciple. This is not the mark of pastors. This is not the mark of super duper disciples over here. This is just discipleship. Come follow me you got to examine your heart right now. This is what I'm asking you to do. Is is this mark true of you? Have you forsaken all for the sake of him? Are there marks of that? Is that evident? And is it particularly evident in your heart, the way you live, the way you love, the way you, you think about your aims in life, the way you think about your family, the way you think about ministering to those that God's put in your life? Do you see it all through the lens of Jesus because of how glorious he is? this is simple discipleship he's raised from the dead you've been born again that means your old self is dead the seeds of this must be in us number three they become fishers of men this is a simple mark of discipleship that is absent in most churches and among most Christians. I think I read a stat to you guys a while ago. It said 99% of Christians will, in America will be born into a Christian family, live their whole life in the church, raise their children in the church, have a Christian funeral, and never share the gospel with one person. Okay, let's get real serious. How many people have you shared the beautiful blessing news of Jesus with in the last six months? Things, doesn't it? The reason we don't share the gospel is because most of us have been won to Christ under a false definition of what a disciple is. Most of us have been told something like this just accept him into your heart, just accept Jesus into your heart. Is that true? It's part of it. That's part of it, yes. That's part of being a disciple, absolutely. Believe him in your heart, That acknowledge him. Romans chapter 10, nine and 10. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, amen, hallelujah. But that's not the whole story. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus in what he's doing. And what is he doing? What is he passionate about? To be a disciple is to have your passions aligned with the passions of God. Otherwise, you're not truly a disciple. So a disciple is someone who says, okay, God, what are you doing? What's my commission? We read that one every week. Go make disciples of all nations. Are you busy with that work? Are you intentional with that work? Are you at least prayerful about that work? Is there a seed of passion in you for that work? When you see souls, do you see see their eternal condition based on the word of God and say, I want to be about that work. I want to be a disciple maker. I don't know how. I need to be trained. Great. That's what I'm here for. I'm a little nervous. Great. Just come along with me. Come along with some of our team. We'll show you how to do this. We'll put tools in your hands. We'll make this as it's the easiest thing you've ever done all you need is a love for Jesus and a passion for the gospel what's he doing right now what's the the Holy Spirit doing right now he's winning children to the gospel in those rooms does that stir passion in you that's what he's doing right now as you speak as I speak he's winning them right now Is, 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 is the fire burning in you what's he doing out there How many precious souls that were lost 24 hours ago were saved to to new status in Christ just within the last day that we don't know about? But that's what God's up to right now. He's taking people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language and winning them to faith in Jesus because that's what He's doing. He's collecting His church to worship Him. By the way, what we're going to spend all eternity doing does it get you excited? One of the most impactful books I ever read was called A Passion for Souls by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, man with a third grade education, a shoe salesman, a shoe salesman, no formal training. He used to walk into rooms, even after he was a big evangelist, and he'd go to like the low-level pastor guys from the area, and they'd all think he was a big evangelist, and he'd just go there with a dozen questions. I have no idea what this says. Can you explain this to me? I've been wondering about this. And they said, you're D.L. Moody, you're supposed to tell us. He said, I don't know, I've never been trained. What did he have? What did that man have? A passion for souls. That's what he had. D.L. Moody came into Chicago, he went into the city, he said, where's the gospel most needed? They said, well, here's what, what churches normally do, but do one thing, don't go over there. He said, where's over there? They said, it's called Little Hell. That's today's Cabrini Green, the remainder of what is Cabrini Green. It was called Little Hell. He left the formal preachers, he said, guess where I'm going? And he walked over to Little Hell, Cabrini Green, and he established a youth group. He used to keep chocolates in his pocket and nickels, and he'd walk up to kids who were basically virtually homeless kids living in, sh- in shacks, and he'd give them chocolates and nickels, and he'd share the gospel with them until there were hundreds of children coming on a, on a, a Saturday morning. Why? Why do he keep chocolates in his pocket? What was with that? He had a passion for souls. No education, no knowledge of how to do this the right way. He just loved Jesus, and he knew the commission, and he knew that he had the Holy Spirit, so why not him? You have the Holy Spirit. Why not you? Where does everyone say you shouldn't go? Where have you said you shouldn't go? Maybe that's the very place you need to go. See, this is the third thing. Let me read this quote again from Kyle Eidelman. He says, fans don't mind him doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required. Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them. Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. What I've tried to do with this sermon is I want to disrupt the common narrative of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself, what were you one to? If what you're doing does not match what Peter was called to, not in the exact same way, but if you're not a fisher of men, if you're not discipling other people at all, you got the wrong message when you signed up. You got the wrong message. And I want you to know, you are invited right now to be a disciple of Jesus. And disciples look like their master. It's going to look different for every one of you. Every single one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. He's anointed you. He's given you unique talents, gifts, networks, assets. He's given you unique personality, story, all of that to be used in the kingdom of God to build up the church and see the gospel go forward. And each of you has a part to play. If you don't think you do, you haven't gotten the message of what Jesus is up to right now. That's what he's doing. Three marks of a disciple. Number one, you've been personally ministered to by Christ. He's healed you, and you know it, and you're grateful for it. Number two, you've left everything. You're unashamed of the gospel. All of that worth nothing compared to knowing Jesus, and I'm following him, whatever the cost. And number three, you've got a passion. You've got a passion for what Jesus has a passion for, that's winning souls. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, I pray over this church right now. God, I don't want to leave anyone in it with a discouraged spirit. And so, God, I want to pray a a spirit of encouragement over those who are truly Christians but perhaps have been a little lost on their calling on what they're supposed to be doing right now. God, I pray over every single follower of Christ in this room and everyone that's been touched by your spirit, that's been changed by you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would infuse in them a sense of their purpose, that it is bigger than their own life, it's bigger than their own vision, it's your vision. And God, I pray that there would be a renewal of vision for what it means to follow Jesus in this place. And that what happens here in this church would inspire other churches around the city because we need many gospel preaching churches. We need many churches on mission for the gospel here in the city. But God, I pray that you do that work in this room right now, God. And I also pray for those who who came in here, hypocrites today, maybe cultural Christians. God, I pray that right now in this room, there will be prayers prayed that sound like this. Lord, I do not want to be a hypocrite. I give you my soul, and you are worthy of following, and I follow you. Make me a fisher of men. Make me a kingdom builder. Thank you for forgiving all of our sin, Jesus. We have nothing that we bring to this on our own. It's all what Christ has done. We say this in Christ's name, amen.